From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, another virtual edition. We're coming to you during the pandemic via Zoom, a remote Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week. The whole crew is here. Audie Weiner's here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. And Kate Massey, I am here as well. Good morning or good afternoon, fellas. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? Good. 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 Feeling better. Be here. We're going to do uh, our usual shtick, an hour. We're going to talk coronavirus up front, then we're going to segue into more sports. Our, our practice has been to talk about coronavirus so we understand it better ourselves because we bring a lot of statistical reason to this stuff and understanding coronavirus requires it, but also it's critical context for sports. Happily, we get more and more sports, but let's still let's still pay attention to what's going on in the world. So anything new, guys? Anything catch your eye in the world of coronavirus recently? Well, uh, there's been a, there's been nothing huge, but there was an interesting report about false positives, which I've been uh, paying attention to for a long time because this is something that is hard is always important in testing. Um, but the PCR testing is ultra sensitive, and why that particularly matters is that if you pick up tiny cases, fragments of genes um, from the virus, you may not be infectious at all. And the latest report seems to indicate that it's actually quite substantive, the numbers of false positives. We had talked last week about a batch, you know, false positive with laboratory error in humans. Um, I think that was, uh, which sport was it? Was it a college or what? Um, I forget where it was. It was college, from it was college uh, football, I think. College football. Um, but it seems to be, I would, I, would, I would guess that the false positive rate depends on the location. But in places like New York City, I would say that about half of the positive tests are probably false positive. Can I ask you a question, Adi? When you're saying the term false positive, I just want to be clear. You're not oh. saying... No, no. So it, let me just say, someone yeah, I, yeah, positive in the sense that they have some antibodies in some PCR tests, but they might not be contagious. They may never have actually had COVID because the level is so low, but you don't mean yeah. that. It's, so I just want to make sure which error rate we're talking. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a couple of errors. So there's like, like the flat out like laboratory error where the, the the proverbial thumb on the scale or you know the the fluid jumped in or you know that's the disaster. Um, but there's the more common um, even well those are not that uncommon by the way. A human error is what it is. But there's the more more I think much more interesting one is when you get a positive test. What does that mean? And right. considering how many people take college campuses, so many tests are being done on asymptomatic individuals because it's policy and it's done every day, every third day, whether that's in the bubble, whether that's in MLB or whether that's in college football. And none of these people have any symptoms or any exposure. So they show up with a positive test and the question is, what do you make of that? And I think that's the right question to ask. And we as statisticians have to say, well, um, it's, uh, it, it basically doesn't necessarily mean you, you are infectious and it probably means you will not get sick. Um, because you probably would have gotten sick already um, before the testing. I think what's also interesting Connie, would be um, you made a statement which you have no proof of, which <laughs> is that they didn't get exposed. So my view is, imagine you actually had a population of people that, uh, you know, this is kind of one of these Gedanken experiments, thought experiments. Imagine you had a population term. of people. Well, no, no, it's, it's a good way to think as a statistician at times. Mm -hmm. Imagine there were a group of people that in theory could not have been exposed. And now you give them a set of tests and you say, okay, here's the baseline positivity rate that we would get under ideal conditions. Now, everything needs to be compared to that. These people could not have had COVID or if they had COVID, we know factually, because let's say they were wearing some bracelet and on them, we know they've not been symptomatic for 14 days. Or that we, you know, that to me is such interesting, important data if we could get it. And that we can't. So just put it in context why it matters. Uh, Temple, our own, um, you know, crosstown uh, uh, school university, they opened um, in class, um, in class uh, teaching, and they were doing monstrous numbers of testing. 5,000 people were tested in, in, and 50 came out positive. A week later, 100 came out positive and they decided to close. We don't know what that means um, in terms of actually infection. Um, a, a, they know about how many are symptomatic and the answer is all just a tiny few, as in literally uh, uh, count on one hand. So what we don't know. Are you, are you suggesting that from a policy perspective, we should probably be a little bit more cautious and less reactive 
given the, the imperfections in these tests. In particular, if you're going to go out and test thousands of college students, especially asymptomatic ones, you should expect a certain number of false positives, and therefore you should be less sensitive to the number of positives that you get. Is this what you're suggesting? Exactly. And, and I, I, ideally, in the following what Eric would like us to know, we don't know this, we should kind of ex ha, uh, set that down as part of the protocol before we do the testing. Well, and also given that there's a, you know, given that they basically have almost unlimited testing ability at this point at the university level, why wouldn't they immediately retest anybody that tests positive? Right. I mean, like, I mean, why, you know, you're saying we have no idea how mm -hmm. many of these are false positives. We should, there's a pretty easy way to get some idea how many yep. of these are false positive, you just immediately retest them. Yeah, I mean, listen, just bringing it back, back to sports, Juan Soto is screaming and yelling for like a week. I'm well, and, and, and on the athlete side, they are basically almost <laughs> yeah, immediately yeah. retested or they're tested 24 hours later. I mean, that's kind of yeah. part of the MLB NFL protocols because, you know, both the players and, and the teams want them to get back, you, you know, as quickly as possible. I just don't know, like universities are, is, is why is that not part of the protocol that they would be essentially immediately retested just to try and give a little bit extra kind of weight to the first positive test? Let me build on your point, uh, Shane, and also build on Kate's original question of what caught my eye. Remember the reason, the number one reason I was given could be, I assume it's the one everyone was given that the University of Pennsylvania chose to go um, virtual was because um, the amount of the turnaround time for the testing was not sufficient to guarantee that there wouldn't be spreading in the interim period from which someone was tested, from which they were given a result. But it, it gets to what caught my, and so that's the reason I was told. Now, again, this is what caught my eye, and I know we just talked about it briefly off the air. Abbott Laboratories, there's been, there was an announcement this week that they claim to have a fast 15-minute, $5 COVID antigen test, that um, there will be a mobile app where essentially it's like, a, I don't hate to use this term, but a get out of jail free card where you basically get the test. It's linked to this app. Um, Shane Jensen can walk around with this and show people, I don't have COVID. I don't have COVID. And I've had, and by the way, if you want to do four or five minutes, if, if they produce enough of them, you might be willing to spend $20 on a given day to do four of these $5, 15 minute tests. Or you might have gone out with some friends and, you know, three hours later, you want to test yourself again. If this is true, if there truly is a test with, by the way, 97.1 positive percent agreement. If you have it, it comes back positive 97%. And if you don't have it negative, it's got a 98.5%. If that's truly there, that seems to me to be a game changer. Assuming Assuming there would be wide distribution and they claim they're going to have 50 million, they could give, produce 50 million a month starting in October. If this is true and people are willing to take it and it's as accurate as they say, given the heterogeneity, is it literally accurate for everybody that much? This seems interesting. This caught my eye. So yeah, it's definitely eye catching. One of my questions is what's the, what's the rate of, of user error? I understand the positive um, and, and the, the specificity and, and, and sensitivity questions, but this is, these are nasal swabs and it's, they compare the technology to pregnancy tests, but you, it's, I, my impression is it's hard to screw up a, pregnant, a home pregnancy test. I can imagine it's easy to screw up a nasal swab, especially based on what I've heard about these nasal swabs. And so I can imagine a world in which user error is going to contribute to a greater percentage of false negatives or, you know, that it's kind of going to go, it's kind of asymmetric. Yeah. To do it wrong, they might not get enough material in there to be tested properly. So I'm a, I'm a little worried about the confidence that one might get, and especially if they start showing these virtual, you know, licenses that says I'm I've tested negative. Well, I, I'd like to know how well they they, they executed it. Maybe just go some tests that's harder to screw up. Yeah, no, because I mean, I, I you know, of course, I was arguing previously to oh, just do immediately a retest to kind of confirm whether or not you are a true positive. You could imagine, again, if you really wanted to say, for example, go to a sporting event or wanted to get into some show and you had to be, you know, have your little app say negative, you could, you know, do this thing like 10 times in one day. And if, again, does the app just sort of, if you're negative on any of them, is that what it goes with? Or like but, but, you, Right, right, right. But also, Shane, we know that we, we like the multiple test idea, but of course it's yeah. more powerful, significantly more powerful yeah. if there's different technologies. You're just throwing the same technology, same operator at it every time. Yeah. The errors are going to be correlated. 
and there'll be less value in that second test. Yeah, also, I'm a little afraid about the moral hazard, uh, Shane, um, meaning that we'll start doing riskier things because we think it's safe um, mm -hmm. when it really isn't. I mean, uh, take the sensitivity. 97% uh, sensitivity is terrific. That means that if, you're, if you have it, it'll get you 97% of the time. Um, uh, and there's only three times you'll show up false negative out of 100. But that's sufficiently high enough um, to not warrant uh, going and hanging around inside in a, in a small place yeah. for an hour to, with talking and, and, and yelling. Um, I think it's a great thing for you to relax a little bit to hang out with some friends, particularly outside. I think that's terrific. Because um, I think there's a lot of people's inability to do things which are actually fairly safe now, and just a little push would be very good for the society, and we'd get things coming back to normal. Um, and in other words, getting people to do things which are probably okay now, and this should just add another layer. But I don't want to see people doing things that are dangerous. No, it's, it's true. And I mean, like, this would be nice to just sort of, if you wanted to visit your parents and you were kind of avoiding doing that, maybe this would be mm -hmm. enough reassurance. But I'm not sure that this would be... Right. Is that sensitivity high enough that we would be able to say, for example, re, you know, have full capacity at football games now, as long as you just test the green on that? I want to point out that we're talking about correcting a different kind of error than we're usually talking about. So often we're talking about people need to be more cautious. People aren't wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And now Adi is pushing back a little bit the other direction and says, yeah, but people, some people are making the opposite mistake as well. They're withholding from activities that are relatively safe or that we might be able to make even safer. And that's a bad, that's a bad error, one, because there are psycho-emotional costs, but also there are economic costs. And I think it's a nice elaboration of the conversation we've been having as a nation, is that let's get better calibrated. Let's get better in both directions, avoiding true risk, but then maybe burying some activities that don't carry, carry as much risk as, as people tend to think. Yeah, yeah I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just follow up on that. Just think about it. We watched a lot, I watched a lot of baseball this weekend some good baseball, some not so good baseball. But uh, um, I'm looking around in that stadium and it is empty as can be. And there's, and there's a way to bring in people. Um, and, and, uh, but people aren't going to be able to do that until they're calibrated. I also saw a social media post, just broke my heart, of someone who hasn't seen their father, their aging father, who has uh, stage four cancer. And she says, I'm likely to not see him before he dies. And I'm thinking, are you, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, right. if someone is about to die of cancer, you absolutely want to go spend some time with that person. Right. Yeah. Right. I was just going to bring up Adi's point as well, which is, you know, people talk about 3%, but these are the kinds of calculations we do as statisticians all the time. So um, let's imagine I was going to go out to an event and I was going to have close enough contact with 10 people around me. Okay. Well, they better all be negative because let's say they all do the test. Then I've got to compute the probability that at least one of them has it, which is one minus the probability that none of them have it, yeah. which is a straightforward calculation to do at that rate of sensitivity. You can see very quickly. That 3% changes dramatically once you start doing that kind of calculation, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Don't, don't forget prevalence, though. I mean, that's the most important thing. No, no, no. So, I, I, so I, conditional I, on, yeah. I agree with you, which is someone has to have it which is a low base rate. And then you have to multiply that by the probability the test will say they don't have it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a false negative. And then you have to look at that. But even that, again, but I think your point, Adi, is a good one, which is that if you're surrounded by a large number of people, and some of those, we like heterogeneity here, we're statisticians, some of those people, now you, you're slightly riskier. So some of those people have higher prevalence than others. And now you still multiply it by a false negative rate, which by the way, we don't know if that's uncorrelated with the likelihood that you have it or not. So it could be that it's more, the test works better for people that have a higher viral dose or a lower with, we just don't know exactly, but you could get to a significant enough number where you can't just, you should not feel like you have a get out of jail free card and you can do anything you want. Right. This is a, this is a, this is a great point. This will become more and more relevant as we have more testing. We want more testing. Testing is going to be helpful. But testing is not a panacea. Um, interesting wrinkles here. A new kind of test is also in the news. This this sewage evaluation test. I've seen comments about going going back months, but they were looking at municipalities. The latest news is in about the University of Arizona using it at the dorm level. So the idea is that you that you test, you sample and test waste out of 
some facility, any facility you have access to, and it's like it's like pooled testing essentially. You're pooling, and and what the, the real claim here, the nice the nice feature here, is that apparently people shed virus before they're symptomatic, and so it's not a backward-looking thing. It's actually a forward-looking. The claim is this might actually be forward-looking, that you might actually identify a population where this exists before people become symptomatic, before people even have a sense that they have it. And if that's the case, great. So for example, at Arizona, they identified this virus shedding in a dorm with 331 people. They went in and did tests and identified two people that had the virus and were asymptomatic and didn't realize they had the virus. How much potential is in this method, guys? What do you think? I think it's terrific, um, particularly for uh, apartment level, dorm level kind of calculation getting kids back in when they live together in this way, it's perfect for collegiate. Can't, not sure how widely applicable beyond that it is, but um, because municipality is too big, uh, maybe I mean, it's, it's complex, right? Yeah. yeah, it's kind of limited to like kind of residential level testing, right? Like yeah. you couldn't have like kind of an activity, it's not gonna help for like an activity level Mm -hmm. kind of thing like you know again getting you know some aspects of normal life we can get back to like again i think it could really help and you know giving universities more confidence to reopen but like you know again you know again thinking ahead to sports and fans in the stadiums or something like that it's not going to be helpful right. in, in in those kind of contexts my only it, it might it also might be very helpful when if we get to the point where the where the viral preference is really low and people are back to normal and whatever, if that ever happens soon, uh -huh. it is a way to kind of uh, catch something quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, my only my only comment was going to be, um, if you do that measurement, which I'm all for, be ready for then if something comes back positive for that particular dorm or building. Yeah. Now you have to come in with the quick individual level test or in some sense, you're back to, well, let's just, we're going to quarantine everybody there for 14 days or oh, hey, that's back. Yeah. I know, but yeah. that's back to where we are unless we yeah. have quick rapid testing. It's, you know, it's the, it's the old adage in marketing. Don't survey people for an answer unless you're going to do something when you hear the answer. So if we hear this <laughs> batch answer, we better be ready to do something once we hear it. Well, that's, that means there's some complementarity between that technology and the Abbott technology that we've just been talking about. You, you bring those things together and you can really start shutting things down quickly. Guys, tell me where you, how you feel about where we are nationally and kind of where we are in the life cycle of this thing. I hadn't looked at the numbers in a while. And when I went back and looked at IHME's latest numbers, this is at the national level. Now, we've had a lot of conversation on this show over the months about the importance of looking at things geographically, the importance of heterogeneity. But just as a quick summary, I'm struck by how plateaued we are. So it's things have really been flat nationally, but they're and they're flat and off peak. They're off peak, but they're still you know steady. So it's steady off peak plateau is kind of where we are. Whether you look at estimated cases, actual cases, deaths, I mean it's all just kind of cruising along. I mean, look, they're getting forty-three thousand confirmed tests in the middle of August. They're estimating the actual new cases daily are like one hundred fifty-five thousand. We're seeing daily deaths around a thousand all August long. It's been about a thousand a day, and it's just kind of cruising through. Um, one of the things that, they, that IHME has added to their to their website and what they track, they track survey responses to the question, "How do you wear a mask when you go in public?" And that's been people are saying fifty percent of the people respond and say every time I wear a mask. But it's fifty percent. That's grown and over the summer it grew up from about forty, but it's been pretty flat. They also use, there's lots of cell phone tracking data to show how much mobility has changed. And mobility is off typical mobility. It's off about 25% now. And that's, that's up. It was off at the, at the bottom of the economic activity in the spring, around April 1st. Mobility was down about 50%. But it's grown back up to now it's off 25%. But that's been flat. My point is mask wearing is flat. Mobility is flat. Cases are flat. Everything, hospital use is flat. And the trouble with this is, as you throw these numbers out looking forward, unless something changes, they continue to grow. And, we're, and we don't see, so, and one of the reasons I'm emphasizing this is because it's kind of gotten quiet. We adapt to certain, we adapt to levels, and it feels like this thing's going away, and it's not going away. It's, it's plateaued at a relatively stable high level. Now, that's at the national thing. I know Adi is always looking at the region where you talk about that, but I'm just curious how y'all are thinking about this and how that feels to you. I can uh, well, my view is, um, I'll just respond to, uh, 
the problem is, is that there's no place that, that, that other than the Northeast, which is pretty still pretty steady, low, either you're up or you're going down. So the national level could look kind of one thing where there's no one place in the country that's matching that. So as you can, as it makes a lot of sense, if you think about it. Um, so yeah, Texas is over its hump, Florida is over its hump, and they've dropped fairly precipitously over the last month from about 10 to 15,000 cases a day, now to about three or 4,000. But there are places that are still going up, particularly in the South um, and other parts of the country. Um, but mostly the Northeast has held, I think, remarkably, and this makes, and this is actually great news, I think, has held really low for the entire summer without much change up or down. That's really, really worth noting. Um, Allegheny County, where Pittsburgh is and had a bit, a little bit of a rise, seems to come back down again. Uh, but Philadelphia, our area, New Jersey, New York, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, certainly Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine have been really pretty flat the whole summer. And I believe we've been, I think most of our, this area has seen much more activity. And that's, that's so that's just a, a, a probably a good news. Okay. Yeah, I, and I, I mean, I kind of, I, I guess as I kind of look at like national trends or even at kind of different states, the thing I'm kind of thinking about kind of looking forward is, you know, to the extent that there's a season, you know, I mean, so much of the discussion about this is, is there going to be kind of a seasonality to this virus where, say, for example, it comes back in in, in the fall in some way, like, is this, you know, is the summer, was the summer kind of uh, relatively flat in part because that's just where the virus is not as transmissible. If there is a seasonality to it, when will we start seeing that? Like, you know, does I assume that that would kind of manifest in, you know, some of the northern parts of the country showing kind of additional waves before the southern parts of the country. And sort of, I I guess, are we going to be able to kind of separate out any seasonality that there is to this virus from just kind of the heterogeneity of the random outbreaks that we've been seeing around things? Yeah, what do we also know? Yeah, what also do we know about just the number of tests that are being done? Like, are people like you know you've heard in certain states, not everywhere, you know, eight day, ten day wait times. Maybe we're like, forget it. I'm just not going to get tested. There's no value in that. And so, what do we know? I mean, I, this is you from a few weeks ago. What do we know about the number of tests? the positivity rate given someone got tested, the hospitalization rate given someone got tested and positive, the death rate. So what it, we agree that the death, the number of deaths seems to be confirmed deaths appears to be relatively flat. What do we know about the steps along the way breaking that down more uh, granularly? So I can tell you that the IHME is reporting that tests showed a steady, really kind of linear climb from mid-March to the, to the to late July, but has been flat since late July. So reported tests in the US has been flat since late July at about 800,000 a day. I'll just throw out one, I don't know hospitalization rates. I wish we could get those. We've talked about that on our show in the past on how difficult they are to get accurately. Deaths are, are you can get, and I've looked at them by state, in the, the early runnings, uh, because of the limited numbers of testing, the death rates were running three to eight percent, even as high as ten percent back in uh, you know some of the some of New York or uh, early days in New York City. The testing, uh, the death rates now are are comfortably below one percent, at high around one and a half, in some places way lower, like like half a percent. All right, fellas. Well, that's a quick spin around the world of coronavirus. It's it's neat to hear some new tests coming out, new technologies. It's always good to have a little hope there, Um, especially given that the stats are looking pretty plateau-y, at least nationally. Audie gives us a good geographic uh, pep talk. It says, look, in some of the regions, we've been able to keep it down, and that's a good sign about potential once uh, these other regions um, kind of hit their peak and come off their peak. All right. uh, We've got sports to talk about, lots of sports to talk about. We'll do so. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Virtual Edition. We do this every week during the pandemic. During the pandemic, we're coming to you via Zoom, but we've got the whole crew here. This is one of the, one of the benefits. No matter where we are, we tend to be able to jump on for an hour a week. Shane Jensen's here, Adi Weiner, Eric Rado. This is Kate Massey. Glad you guys can be with us. You can reach out anytime. Best way to get to us is at W Moneyball. We'd love to having your questions and comments up there. We've got some this week. Um, in fact, we just discussed the wastewater test 
methods at the University of Arizona that was suggested via Twitter at, at, at FW Moneyball. So there was questions that way. We'll try to pick up at least one every week, talk about it. We love hearing from you. Give us questions, observations, whatever you got. So many thanks to those who have over the last week. Guys, we've just talked about coronavirus. Let's talk about the world of sports. We've got lots of things going on now in the world of sports happily. And I'm curious what about it has caught your eye. Well, let me just jump in. I, I was watched a lot of baseball over the weekend. Yankees played a lot of games. They went on a terrible seven-game losing streak. Then they and then they managed to win a, a couple, a couple of the big comebacks, making me feel a little bit better. But I was outside. I was walking in, and my nephews are watching the Yankee game. And I overhear the announcers talking about sample sizes. And I think this is a great thing. The world, the world is now focusing on on the field of statistics. And the message, of course, with sample sizes. It's small in baseball, and they correctly understood that really that means anything can happen. You can see a great hitter have a terrible season. You can find um, leaderboards populated with you know mediocrities, and you can have great teams, maybe like one up in Boston, not have a good season. It could just all be luck. We don't really know. <laughs> great question for you guys. Do you think that – I agree that people are more fluent in sample size in sports, maybe especially in baseball. You start seeing more of it in basketball and, and football as well. Do you think there's, do we have any evidence that that, that, that that generalizes to everyday life? I mean, this sample size phenomenon, this, you said it very well. They learned that anything can happen. And, there, and therefore what, guys? That means therefore don't overreact to what does mm -hmm. happen. Do you think anybody says, oh, I learned this thing in baseball, and therefore I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to adopt it in the rest of my life? I, I, I'm afraid that, that we don't see that. I'm sad that I don't, we don't see enough of that generalizability of sample size. Well, let me ask you no a comment. Let me ask you a related question, Audie. So let's imagine in a regular baseball season with 162 games, let's imagine we have a hitter who's performing poorly to his standards, okay? Um, at what point in the season would they say, I need to start making adjustments? And so let's say the answer would be 50 or 60 games. Well, if you do that this season, the entire season's over. That's right. So do you get the sense that people uh, – can I, Eric, can I just catch your name to this just for fun? Gary Sanchez. Or Mike Trout. Or Mike Trout is actually an interesting name who is technically underperforming. He's only a great baseball He's only player this year. The league in, in home runs. By his, you said relative to his standards, and relative to his standards, he is having a down season. By the way, I didn't mind Gary Sanchez's uh, grand slam yesterday, but ignoring that for a second, um, my question to you was um, are, are hitters going to adjust much quicker? Like, will they say, you know, 20 out of 60 is the same as 54 out of 162? They're both a third of the season, right? They are not the same. Let me tell you that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know whether that's true. I mean, I have no idea. But I have to say, that talk about Gary Chancellor. I mean, he's doing terribly, yet they seem to understand that 128, which or 150 or whatever his batting average is right now, is 100 points below what we think of him as being a hitter. And after these numbers of games, it's not – I mean, it's, it's not a good start, let's be clear. But it's not worth benching him. And, and, um, and I think they're starting to think about something being particularly wrong. And I'm not sure that that may be a little premature. I haven't actually done the calculation. Well, Adi, let me ask you another thing. This is, this is – I'm sure our Wharton Moneyball listeners, when they listen to this podcast, are going to ask the following questions to themselves. And they need your answer, Adi. Tell <laughs> us the fallacy in the following logic. Gary Sanchez has been the big league seven, eight years, whatever the number is. He's a 250 hitter. He's hit 150 the first half. Isn't he going to hit 350 the second half? <laughs> he hit 250. Yeah, right. No, no, right. I'm just saying that's the logical. So what, what's illogical about that line of thinking? Because that's what many people think. He's going to end yeah, up Actually, I think this is what, uh, what Tversky and Kahneman uh, termed the, the law of small numbers. Um, they actually did, said that people believe that they know correctly that in the long run, you'll average, your average hits your, your, your observed sample average equals your true average. But they think that that works by kind of balancing off the, in the short run as well. So the 150 has to get balanced with a 350 to come out to 250. It doesn't work that way. It works by amortization, which means that the 150 happens over a small period and that just gets averaged out and as proportionally comes to zero and the long run takes over. So no, we don't expect 350 out of the next half. We expect 250 out of the next half and we expect a bad season overall. But that doesn't mean we should be benching it. So on this, on this benching question and the small sample question, we are of course talking about just the output of his at-bats, any players at-bats. 
tell me, these days, given all the technology we have, do we not have more process measures that would allow like yeah, as peripherals? We do, yes. we do. I, I don't so know what Gary Sanchez. Walk me through, walk me through some of the peripherals you might use in order to basically make a, a well-grounded judgment earlier in the sample size than you might otherwise if you didn't have it. What do we okay, got? So in, in baseball, and we can actually talk about this in other sports because they're coming online. In baseball, they have something called XWOBA. So what XWOBA does is uh, it stands for expected weighted on-base average. And so on-base average, we know weighted on-base average uh, is kind of like weighted by the value of the, of the, of the hit. Um, so it's more like a slugging percentage, but it's sort of a runs created type thing. And the X stands for expected, and it's a function of the angle and, and the velocity of the, of the batted ball. And so it essentially says, given how hard you hit it and where you hit it, what angle, vertical and horizontal, um, what is the expected um, outcome? And then they weight that yeah. and average it up. And so that yeah. could be very high, even though your actual um, on-base percentage or yeah. average is actually low. So that's what they're yeah. using in baseball. By the way, this is also an issue, and I'm not going to talk about momentum, but I will talk about non-stationarity. I'm looking at Gary Sanchez's career numbers right here, just to give you an idea. So, um, by the way, he has a 240 lifetime average. Maybe it was 250 at the beginning of the season. But here's the pattern. His first year, he had 299, then 278. Then, by the way, the next year, he had 300 and something at-bats. He hit 186. Last year, he hit a whopping 232. So if you forget this year, he's a 200 hitter over a period of 800 at-bats in the last two seasons. So you could say maybe what was abnormal was his 299 and 278 the first two years. The last 1,000 at-bats, he's a sub-200 hitter. And I'll just point out that, uh, you know, another kind of peripheral thing that people do look at that doesn't need the kind of fancy exit velocity and all that stuff is things like batting average on balls in play. That's right. been something that we've looked at, you know, for the last, so that's like, a, for the pitchers. 10, for the 20 pitchers, years. Yeah. No, yeah, I mean, again, you, you know, uh, for hitters, it also can suggest, bit, you, yeah. you know, to the extent that there has been unluckiness mm -hmm. in somebody's, you know, sort of hit distribution, etc. That um, that can, you know, be somewhat, a, you know, kind of an evaluation. Yeah, I'm assuming there's other stuff. You, you, you assume that they know something about, you know, where the guys taking balls or where the guys I'm taking strikes or where he's missing at balls. And, and you know something about. Yeah. They're, 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 they're now coming probably up with something uh, about his swing, you know, mechanically, they observe so the swing in such fine resolution. The, the big thing that they're doing now, this is what MLB advanced media is doing. Um, they, cause they have the stat cast data, the, which is now of course the Hawkeye data. It's very yeah. accurate. And what they're doing is they're looking at what you're um, like, how often you're, you're swinging in a bad pitch. They've been doing that for some time. Um, and then they're actually looking at on, on a per location basis. So yeah, you, you're, when right. you get a ball down the middle, you're supposed to, and you swing at it, they'll look at what you got out of it and they'll kind of adjust it. And so it turns out that one of the reasons why Mike Trout is really good, really good, is he doesn't fall for shit. He, uh, excuse my language, but he doesn't swing at lousy pitches. And so what he does yeah. is he, he's good at being patient enough to swing at the balls that he can do a lot with. But when he does stuff with it, he doesn't do it better than anybody else, which is interesting, right? So he's not... When he hits the ball down the middle, he does exactly what you're supposed to do with a ball down the middle, drive it. But he doesn't do that better than other people. What right. makes him special mm -hmm. is that he avoids those terrible, um, those terrible pitches. Which so are so, so he would be, he'd be kind of a, would a contrast be like Giancarlo Stanton where, you know, he, I mean, he just absolutely murders balls. <laughs> like when he gets exactly. a hold of it, he like hits yeah, the cover exactly. off the thing. That's right. Exactly. In a historically unprecedented way, but he also does swing at a lot of lousy pitches. In your division, the Rays have won 18 of the last 21. That sounds like a heck of a run they're on. Their bullpen um, is absurd. Yeah. So we had a we had a we had a, an email from a listener who suggested is it was it the Rays fan that he was talking about? He was talking about the different styles like a bullpen is better this was a hypothesis that a bullpen would be better if the throwers had different styles you got a breaking pitch guy you got a you got a you got a heat guy and, and they had they supposedly the Rays have not just a good pin but they have guys who throw differently do you believe that hypothesis yeah so i i responded to that listener it was great that the listener sent us an email what i said is you know there's some empirical challenges but what you'd have to do is you first have to come up with some measure 
of different styles, whatever that means. Then, of course, you want to condition on the things that you know kind of affect it, like maybe average pitch speed. You'd want to uh, control for maybe historical performance. But it's, a matter of fact, I love the question because conceptually, we could debate whether the measure of variety is right, but this is an empirically testable hypothesis. And it's also one, yep. by the way, where if a team found this result out to be true, it's, it's one of those money ball moments where someone could say, I don't need the best. I need something that adds the most variation to my pitching staff. And then one could actually use that in a money ballish kind of way. Right. It's a tough problem. By the way, that listener, real quickly, that was Zach Abraham down here in Austin, actually, is a Westlake High School senior at Westlake High. So Zach appreciated that note. I think it's a really interesting idea. It's a little challenging because you obviously, let's say it turns out the diversity of pitch type is important. Um, but how bad a pitcher do you want, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, you know, so how valuable is it? So effect size is going to be the driver. There, That's why right? I said I'd have the yeah. main effect has yeah. to be in the model. I want, yeah. I don't want a guy, oh, here's a way of variety, a guy that can't throw more than 70 miles an hour. I mean, that's variety, yeah. but that's not, yeah. I mean. So yeah, I, and, and you're going to have like, I mean, it would be really interesting to say because, you, you know, it's also there's going to be, there's the kind of variety and sort of pitch styles inherent to the pitchers, but there's also like usage. You know, like yeah. how, like, like having a, a manager or, or, you know, sort of like a staff that can kind of recognize the correct situation for the different components of this diverse pitching staff is key. And I mean, obviously, I think the Rays, you know, they're one of the more analytically analytics forward yes, they organizations. Are. They, they, I, I think another team with the same kind of diversity of pitchers wouldn't necessarily do as well as what the Rays are doing with them. So on the baseball front and even on the pitching front, the trade deadline is on us. And it's, a, it's an interesting year because all the rules are different. We know less about players. We have greater playoff probabilities. It's really, it must be a, a more challenging set of decisions that teams make. But the Indians dealt Clevenger. Of course, they might have had some uh, other reasons for doing that. He was one of the guys that got caught sneaking out. And some other players were really unhappy with him being on the roster at all. So He's a big pitcher that they sent out west to the Padres. He got a bunch of prospects in return. Uh, Neil Payne had an article on his model. He and Nate Silver came up with the model. They have 538 writers, of course. They came up with the model five years ago for whether teams should trade or not at the deadline. Have you guys seen this model? I know Neil's a friend of the show, but I don't remember having talked about the model before. Really neat. They thought they, they, they quantified what uh, win probability a team should be willing to give up. In like trade trade future win probability for sort of current win probability. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the whole thing, the whole thing turns on this this idea, and this is something that y'all have talked about over the years. Um, this idea that adding a, a great player has different value depending on how good your team is. So if you're just barely going to make the playoffs, adding a great player doesn't improve your World Series championship probability very much. But if you've got a strong team. It, it, it really increases your probability. So it's, it's convex. The chance of winning a probability, the value of the same player is convex as, it, as, as, as you go up. So the, so at least the different prescriptions at the trade deadline. So anyway, I just, I just for the first time saw Payne's article about this. I thought it was very clever. And, and um, of course, we were big fans of his. But any other thoughts on the trade deadline? Usually we see teams bailing right now. Some teams I mean, I fans. I think it's fascinating just because, I mean, we've got this combination of a short season and an expanded playoff roster that I think there's very few teams, unfortunately the Red Sox are one of them, that are basically out of playoff contention at this point, at the trade deadline. And so I think, you know, I think one of the interesting dynamics of this trade deadline is there are less obvious sellers on the market right now. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that kind of like, we can, that kind of, keeps us from having, you know, really being able to kind of look at the historical precedent as far as what we should see. Yeah. And it's also really hard to do trades when everything's in the small sample sizes, right? Mm -hmm. Because are you, because this is often a time where you, you go and get pitchers um, who are, you release pitchers who are doing poorly. You go, you go out and collect hitters, you make trades for people who look terrific because mid season it's, and, and usually the trade deadline is, is past mid season. Um, you really have a lot of data about some of these new, new these uh, these young people or people who are, who are doing badly, and you can actually make a reliable uh, forecast. Guys have like five right or six now, starts. They got like five or six starts at this time. Yeah, yeah. it's just terrible. I mean, what are you going to mm -hmm. do? I mean, it's hard to make a call. 
So I think this all suggests that the trade deadline will be less interesting this year than it usually is. Um, but we've already got a little bit of activity up there. I guess I want to hear a little bit from you changing sports. I want to hear a little bit about, um, did you take in the golf tournament this weekend at all? These cra this crazy end to the golf tournament where uh, Dustin Johnson hits a 44-foot putt on the 72nd hole, I think, to take it into a playoff. And then he, the guy he goes into a playoff with, John Rahm, Hits a 50% longer putt. He hit a 66 foot putt to win the BMW in the first hole of the playoff. Also, this is that true championship thing where they're cutting down the field every every week, and this was the next to last round of it. So they had 60 players, I think. This they had 70. They had 70, and now it's down to 30. Okay, so Eric, tell us. I'm, I'm guessing you took this in. So one DJ was in. So Johnson, we talked about him last week. He won last weekend's tournament. By 11 strokes. We talked about that on the air. By the way, we had lots of feedback because Eric and I were kind of musing on how unusual 11 is, and people gave us a bunch of suggestions, a bunch of uh, historical um, uh, wins that were bigger than that. They're, they don't happen that often, but they do happen. So people have won by 16, for example. But here's Dustin again. So Dustin comes in here, he gets into the playoff, he doesn't win, but he gets bombed out by John Rahm, 66 foot putt. What'd you think, Eric? Well, first of all, I did watch the tournament. Um... Even before getting to that, I mean, John Rahm shot 64 on an extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult course. I mean, he was plus two and he ended up at minus four. So let's just start with that. And he did something. Um, by the way, I was going to call in the network. They, they made one of the dumbest statements during that golf tournament. So let me explain to you just for one second what happened in the third round before the final round. John Rahm hits the ball on the green. Okay. I don't know if you guys know it, but you can't just pick up your ball. You have to mark the ball before you pick it up. He just walked over and picked up his ball. And then he's like, oh, shit, I just Oops. picked up my ball. So it's actually a one-stroke penalty. Now, he was able to put the ball back down. He ended up two-putting, got a bogey on the hole. But all during the final round, when Dustin Johnson made that putt, the announcers kept saying, Rom would have won the tournament if he hadn't gotten that penalty 25 strokes, 25 holes ago. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Like you think that you can just subtract one after the fact 25 holes later? It, it doesn't, like they lost any concept of sequence effects. So John Rom won this tournament after having, I've never seen this in all my years of watching professional golf, where someone got a penalty from picking up their ball on the green without actually marking it. But to show you how great he is, he then came back, and it was the wildest finish. I mean, Dustin Johnson, in my view, had a 0% chance to hit that. It wasn't just a 44-footer. It was downhill with three breaks in it. There's no chance for him to hit that putt. Then they replay the same hole, and John Rahm hits a bad shot, is 66 feet away, and – there's, there's, I mean, the putt had 10 foot of break in it from 66 feet. And he goes first because he's the farthest from the hole. It goes in. And then Dustin Johnson has a 35-footer, which he barely misses by like six inches. It was a, a crazy finish between the top two golfers in the world, by the way. They're ranked one and two in the world. They go into next week's tournament, ranked one and two. Dustin Johnson one, John Rahm two. Um, mm -hmm. Remember, Dustin Johnson starts the tournament at minus 10. John Rahm minus eight, then there's a minus six, and there's a bunch of minus four guys, and there's 30 players. Some of them are 10 strokes back to start the tournament. I'm going to make a prediction right now. You start 10 strokes back of Dustin Johnson, the way he's playing right now, you're not winning that tournament. So how many guys does that put in contention? How many people of the 30, where, how many are less than, within 10 of Dustin starting that? Well, all, all of them are within 10 of him. Only but the worst guys are at 10, I see. Okay. Five bottom are, are at even par, and he's at minus 10. I would say six, five, six strokes, so maybe half of them have a lead. And by the way, it's not that you just have to beat Dustin Johnson. Remember, if you're starting at minus four, got to beat John Rahm, too, who's at minus eight. got to beat Rory McIlroy, who's at minus six. And, you know, you gotta be, you got to shoot better than all of these players who have somewhere between a two- and six-stroke advantage. Yeah, this is, and this is the strongest field in golf. Fourteen in the finals. It, it is it is mind blowing that, that Ron picked his ball. I mean, even amateur golfers, you have a lifetime if you don't pick your ball, <laughs> you mark your ball on the green, and it's a really weird instinct. He must have been terrifically distracted. Okay, U.S. Open started today. I know you've been protesting this for weeks, Eric, but are you going to actually watch the thing? No, he's not even interested in watching it. I'm what going about on the women's side. So 
I'm going to watch when there's on, forget the women's side, which is really exciting. I'm I'm, I'm going to watch every yeah, women's. Yeah, yeah. But the men's side, the only time I'm going to watch is when I think someone has a legitimate chance to wipe that asterisk away from Djokovic's winning this tournament. Djokovic is, Adi, get this for a second. Adi, there's, 120, there's 128 players in the men's field. 128. He's minus 125 to win the tournament. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> You're saying he's the odds-on favorite to win. That is That's cool. crazy. I mean, how many? There's like two or three out of the top ten that are actually playing. Is that right? Well, like that? Nadal's not playing because he just – because of COVID, yeah. he didn't come over. Federer, and of course, Federer. has a knee injury. Rowinka's um, not playing too, right? Rowinka's not playing. Andy Murray's still coming back from injury. And so what you're going to have to hope – not hope. Maybe you're a Djokovic fan. If you're not a Djokovic fan, you're going to have to hope like six foot ten John Isner has the greatest 150-mile-an-hour serving day of his life and he can't break Djokovic, but he wins every set 7-6 in a tiebreaker, and he eliminates him. Um, I don't see in a five-set match. I mean, by the way, not only this, but Djokovic is 22-0 and this year. He has not lost. Um, I don't see how anybody – I think it's way under – I think he's much – he should be minus 200 in my view. Derek wants two to one. Got it. So he's got – he's, he's giving you the field. He's easily giving you the field. Um, well, that's better, Bull. Well, then I think, Eric, if you, if you want to hold by it. Why do you make some assumption that I haven't been in contact with people already? <laughs> <laughs> so guys, speaking of assumptions, when can we assume that we're going to actually see football this year? What do you think? What are your updated probabilities on, like, the number of games or the number of weeks of football, college or NFL? Professional or college? Both, both. Well, I'd like to push my probability of seeing football much higher, given that it's, you know, only a couple weeks away at this point. Well, we're As far as the number of games that happen, yeah. that, that's, that's still difficult. I don't know if I would change well, my, I'm I mean, not sure I'd change my odds of uh, the Super Bowl being played, for example. I mean, I'm, I'll change my odds about baseball. Um, I was least optimistic of them actually getting started. Um, but now they've, they, they've had – what I would have thought would have been essentially season-ending breakouts and haven't and just put their head down and played right through it. Uh, That just totally changes my, my estimation. I think there's going to be a world series and I'd put it at about 75 to 90% about now. That sounds, that sounds right to me. And we're pretty clearly going to see championships in NBA and NHL. And those are like, they actually played a more or less a full season. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. They feel not, they feel less asterisks than the others. So we're not yeah. feeling too bad about those three sports. Football, the of NFL, course, most yeah. the NFL's football in a different sports. situation because in the, the MLB, and I agree with Adi, I was much more pessimistic yeah. um, about baseball. Um, with the NFL, let's imagine a, a breakout happens with one of the teams, and now that team can't play for two or three weeks. So what do you do? Like, um, and you, do do you just advance? You know, is it winning percentage that matters? You can't just make up those games so easily like you can in other sports. Especially That's if- the key thing. Baseball's ability to do like you know three or four days of double headers in a row to sort of make up things. You just you can't do that with football, obviously. The difference between football and, and professional college, and maybe I'm, do you think this is true? That college they'll be more interested in just playing for playing's sake. It's like, okay, if we don't get all the way through the season, whatever, we have some kids here who have dedicated their lives. We're not going to go play pro. Let's let them play three games or four games or whatever. Let's just play as much football as we can logistically pull off and not worry about it in a way that you won't quite say the same thing about the NFL. I agree. I'd be happier, by the way, Kate, if in college football, the SEC wants to play an SEC and declare an SEC champion, and so does whatever the whatever conferences are playing, the uh, ACC, whatever. Fine. I just don't want to call. I don't want. I'm not going to. I'm not going to call them somebody the national champion. But I'm more than happy if they win their conference championship, even if they play half a dozen games. And I'm with you. If they can play, and the students are asymptomatic, and it doesn't actually influence the student population and the staff and other people that work there, I'd be fine to see a half a dozen SEC games this year. That'd be great. Has the has the playoff? the end of the year playoff been uh, ruled out officially yet? Or would they potentially do it with just the, you know, conferences that played out? They would definitely do it with the conferences that played out. The NCAA won't, won't, won't authorize it. They won't say this is an official NCAA championship, but 
I mean, some people don't care. <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the people who run and, and people who put it on TV are up for doing that if they can actually play enough of a season. Of course, now the Big Ten is talking about, and the Pac-12 presumably are talking about beginning their season in the fall. Well, let me ask you a question. They might start You know, my dream has always been for the UCFs of the world to get into the playoff. Is this the time since there's no two of the power conferences aren't playing? Yeah, for sure there's a greater chance. I mean, there's no question about that. Also, they're just going to get more. This is kind of their moment in many ways, Eric, because they're going to get more exposure. I mean, right. Memphis's and Cincinnati's of the world, they're just – that's we have less football on TV, and so you're going to see better slots. You got me excited about college football even more than I normally am. If you're telling you know, me that they're not going to change who gets the, the playoff structure, but now one at least maybe at least one of these teams that could in theory have gotten in in the past but can't now, but can now, I'm all for it. Let's play the games. So tell me this, Eric: Will it be easier or? harder for those guys to make the case given that the teams will be the conferences are less connected so we'll have less of this interdivisional stuff that allows you to say well the SEC is stronger than the Pac-12 or whatever we'll have less of those games and so when you have Cincinnati go 11 and 1 or 9 and 1 or however many games they play you think they'll make an easier case for them or a harder case for them to say hey I deserve to be in the playoff we didn't have we we, we didn't see the intersectional stuff but you can I'm, we're a good team or, or another factor, if, 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 you know, the SEC is only playing within its own conference, you know, it's, it's, the top teams are going to have a less difficult schedule, right, than they would have ordinarily, right? Because they, you know, Alabama typically plays kind of, you know, it, it, within its division as well as some top teams outside of their conference in a given no, season. No, other way around. Uh, they, other they way. only play SEC teams, and so it's much tougher. All, All the right. SEC teams are much, much All right. Well, well in, that case, in that case, that would, argue, again, argue for the UCFs of the world. If, if you know, if, if, if the SEC schedule is going to be tougher, you're going to have, you know, because the, the way the UCFs of the world would not get in is if the SEC ended up producing, you know, like three or four one-win teams, yeah, win or less teams. Just, just right. to answer these right. 10 right. seconds, lack of connectedness hurts. So we do have college football this weekend, guys. I don't know if it's really a week zero or a week one, but the biggest game is Monday night, the Labor Day game. It's BYU-Navy. But there's a, there's a handful, six or seven games between 10, 10 or 11, actually, between now and then. But BYU-Navy, Monday night on ESPN, that'll be one way to think about officially kicking off. We'll have college football. Well, I get to at least watch that game. It's very exciting game. news, yeah. And then, and then I guess it's the, fo the following Thursday is to start the NFL season. Okay, here we go. Here we go then. All right, guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. Thank you for listening from the whole team. Audi Weiner, Shane Vincent, Eric Meadows, this big massive from the boss man, Maddie D. Thank you guys for being here. We'll do it again next week. Come back and join us between now and then. 